0: Andy is going to come and share with us as we continue in our series. And we're going to be reading from um, the book of Luke, if you have your Bibles with you, starting at chapter 2, verse 66, reading through to Luke 23, verses 20 to 25. And it says At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, Met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You were right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. <clears throat> Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, as you can see, for he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will just pray for Andy before he comes up. Father, we thank you for Andy and the position of leadership you've given him here at Riverside. And Lord, we just pray now that as he brings your word to us, you would speak through him, that we would have that sense of you speaking directly into each of our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. morning. Wonderful to see everyone. And uh, I don't know if uh, what your favorite courtroom drama is. Uh, many people have got a favorite. We love the courtroom drama, don't we? 12 Angry Men, uh, you know, where you've got the one juror who says he's not guilty and everyone else says he's guilty and he's gonna kind of turn the, turn their argument around. Erin Brockovich, where he's got that corporate injustice and people coming against it. Killer Mockingbird, everyone did it at school. There's loads and loads of them, and as I say, everyone's probably got a favorite because we love them. Um, sometimes it's that def- def- kind of career-defining case for someone, you know, the young rookie uh, lawyer who comes up and, uh, and makes his point and finds that key, key moment uh, in, the, in the story. Uh, or it may be kind of line of duty is your thing, that's what you've been watching lately with a uh, super Hastings going after Ros Huntley and uh, trying to find out what's going in there. But whatever it is, um, each one of us is, uh, well many, many of us find love these kind of things. Even Shakespeare, uh, he used to write them as well. So um, Merchant of Venice, I think was probably one of the earliest courtroom dramas that's been written as a, as a prose, uh, with uh, uh, the moneylender Shylock, who wants his pound of flesh, and uh, Portia, who's act, the acting defense lawyer, finds that key loophole where she says, you can have a pound of flesh, but if you drop one bit of blood, then you're getting done. And I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for anyone doing GCSE or whatever. But uh, the thing that really riles me is the whole system is supposed to be based on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you get a witness or you get a, um, a, somebody being accused gets asked a question. And the answer to the question is way more complicated than yes or no. Yeah, you've gotta kind of explain it. And they say, no, we just want a yes or no answer. And you're thinking, well, if you only say yes or no, we're not getting the whole truth here. What is going on? So anyway, that riles me and uh, it's way, way more complex. Today, we've got two trials. There's the uh, religious trial of Jesus. And then there is the civil trial uh, of Jesus as well. So the religious trial is at the end of Luke 22 that Sarah read to us and then it goes into the other one. So I wanna start with the first of those, the religious trial of the Jews. And the key issue here is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Messiah of God or the Christ of God? Because they're sure that his claims are absolutely false. They're sure that he is therefore being blasphemous in all that he does, claiming equality with God, and therefore should be punished by death according to Jewish custom. So if you are the Messiah, they say, tell us. And uh, Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows that whatever he says is not going to work. So they're full of unbelief. He says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. You have already made your decision. You are not open to the truth here. And secondly, there's this intellectual dishonesty where they refuse to follow reason. If you remember a few chapters earlier, um, he says that he's asked the question, you know, uh, uh, by what authority do you do these things? And he says, well, let me ask you a question. You know, By what authority did John do his things? And they go away and they think, well, reasonably, we know we think he's from God, but if we say that, then we've gotta say, you're from God. So they say, we're not gonna answer your question. And he says, well, neither will I. Because they won't follow the logic of their own reasoning uh, in it as well. They've already made the decision, they've already rejected the evidence, and uh, they have very closed minds and closed hearts. So he doesn't debate them. But what he does say, very provocatively, is from now on, the Son of Man will stand, or sorry, will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Two messianic claims right there. First of all the son of man is a direct reference back to Daniel 7 where the Messiah comes back at the very end of time like a son of man and he comes with all authority, all glory and all sovereign power. So this is not just a throwaway line, this is a reference that they would have known of which sort of links him to God. And then secondly, he refers to uh, Psalm 110 where he says he will sit at the right hand of the mighty God. That he basically has the equality of God, he will have all the glory and honor and power um, that God has uh, by claiming that honor. And so they say, are you then the son of God? You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony? and we've heard it from his own lips, and they use that later on in, uh, with Pilate in John 19's account. You know, whatever you say will be taken down and used as evidence against you, which is exactly what they do uh, with that. However, that's the religious trial, but the Romans are not really interested in some religious law being broken by some Jews, they they need something far more if if they're gonna do anything with them. They need a civil trial. So they come up with a whole lot of charges that might cut it with the Romans. So they accuse him then in Luke 23 of subverting our nation, of opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, of claiming to be a messiah like Caesar if you like, a king, and stirring up in verse five all the people all over Jerusalem, civil unrest. So these are the charges they now bring And I wanna start with Pontius Pilate because he's the Roman governor that is given charge of this. And apparently he had fairly typical Roman fairness because they were trying to keep the peace of Rome. They were fairly fair in how they did things. But Pontius Pilate particularly didn't like the Jews. And earlier in in Luke's gospel, there's all sorts of incidences uh, that come about um, where He provokes all sorts of problems in the temple. He causes some riots and anyway, he's not keen on them. But the accusations that they bring, he's gotta take seriously here. So he asks Jesus some questions. But as he asks him, he's impressed by Jesus. He's impressed by his character. He's impressed by his self-control. He's impressed. Uh, And he looks at him and he thinks, this guy's not really gonna cause any political harm to the Roman Empire, so I find him innocent. I see nothing wrong here. Three times he declares no basis for any charges. So he wants to avoid sentencing Jesus, but at the same time he wants to placate the Jews who are pretty irate about everything. So we see Pilate wriggling. We see him trying to find a way through that works for everyone and for himself. And so here are four ways that we see. First of all, he tries to pass the buck because he he learns that Jesus started in Galilee and he thinks, fantastic, that's Herod's jurisdiction. So Herod's in town, he can deal with it and I don't need to do anything about it. So he sends him to Herod, Herod checks him out, sends him back says, no, this is your problem, mate. You can sort this out. So he has him back. So then he tries uh, kind of half measure and he thinks, well, what I'll do is I'll I'll punish him to keep the Jews happy um, and then I'll release him um, to keep my conscience happy. Um, thinking that the, you know, the brutal whipping, the flogging, you know the, the 40 lashes minus one, the laceration of his back, which itself was brutal, would be enough to placate the Jews. But they are having none of it, and uh, they want more. They want his crucifixion. So then he tries another way. He tries to do the right thing, which is to release Jesus, but for the wrong reason. He doesn't do it because that's the just decision. He says, okay, I'm gonna put it out to you guys who can we release? Because I've remembered that there's this custom we have at Passover where we can release a prisoner. So he's hoping now that the people will make the decision for him, that they will make the right and just decision. But of course, they don't. They say, well, we want Barabbas. And Barabbas really has caused insurrection, and he really has killed people. And at this point, you realize the people are not interested in the civil, civil charges whatsoever, because they're quite happy to have Barabbas back. And Something else is going on. So he, he does that. And if you read on into Matthew's gospel, um, there's that point where he comes out and he washes the blood off his hands in front of the people. And he says, this is, I'm, this is, I'm putting the blame on you guys, okay? I'm not taking any responsibility. I'm just gonna walk away from this. And it's very easy to, uh, to look at all of that. But um, he tried everything to get out of it. Unfortunately for Pontius Pilate, his name was written into the Christian crees that is forever said right through the centuries, that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So well for trying Pontius, but you didn't quite make it. But it's very easy for us to judge Pilate and think what a weak-willed, lily-livered guy he was. But actually the challenge comes to us because we can be equally devious in our, in our own behaviors. You know, so easy it is to pass the buck in life, to, to not make the difficult decisions that we have to make. You know, we just, we just leave it, hope someone else will make that decision. It might be at work, it might be at home, just in life in general, making those tough decisions. And um, it may be that we opt for a half-hearted compromise in life. You know, we, we make a, a, you know, half a decision on something because we wanna avoid the hassle, or we wanna suit ourselves. Or it may be that we do the right thing but for the wrong reasons. You know, so often we do something that looks really good, but we don't do it for others or for God, we actually do it for ourselves, for some self acclaim that we might get. Um, or fourthly, you know, how often do we, do we wash our hands of things and think, I'm gonna put the blame on someone else, I'm not gonna take the blame for this. You know, I love that line where somebody says, you know, if something goes wrong, what do you do? Do you look out the window for somebody to blame, or do you look in the mirror to think, what could I have done differently to have averted that? that problem, and that's the challenge. Anyway, Pilate eventually concedes to the people. Um, You notice it's all their shouts prevailed, their demands, their will, the pressure of others kind of comes through, the pressure of culture, and so he compromises. He's got no backbone uh, of his own uh, and no resolve there. And I think some of the biggest regrets uh, in life that often we have come from the pressure of others, caving in to what other people, what we think other people want us to do rather than actually what is the right thing. So what's really going on in this passage? Why are these people so vehement against Jesus? And I think the key word is up in verse two of chapter 23 which is this word subversion, subverting. He's accused of subverting our nation. He's claiming to be a king. And uh, subversion is one of those words that, if we're honest, we probably know sort of what it means, but it's the sort of word that comes up in a crossword clue. It's not a word we use every day necessarily, but it's probably a word that we need to understand uh, quite well. So it's got a couple of meanings. It means to overthrow or plot the downfall of of a kingdom or of a nation, um, and it also means to push something back down into its proper place and uh, with Jesus it's not actually the nation that he's subverting okay it's a it's the actually the kingdom of darkness there's a spiritual kingdom at work and it's that that Jesus comes to subvert if you like it's that that he comes to press down into its proper place the things in this world that should be under God that aren't that should be under the feet of Jesus but aren't And it's not that he's trying to force something down and and by force keep it there, it's actually putting it back into its proper place, the place where it was meant to be uh, under God. And so the early Christians were subversive in how they lived. They lived their lives, they refused to honor Caesar because they refused to say that he was the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings um, and that Jesus was. And that got them into a lot of bother. But at the same time, they were submissive um, in the sense that um, you know, the governing authorities um, we're to submit to. The New Testament teaches us that we're to submit to those. That God has, has made us to be helpful citizens, uh, good and honest citizens. Um, that government has come from God. That, that uh, the authorities are there because God has given them their authority. But our ultimate authority is not them. Our ultimate authority is God himself and so they believed uh, in in that but they would also realise that Caesar was not their ultimate Lord in all of that, that he was only there because God had given him that that position as it were and so they were subverting Caesar's authority to its rightful place under God's authority and they were persecuted because of it. If Jesus is your Lord, Caesar isn't your ultimate Lord. Recently, I was a Chinese Christian activist. This is Hu, a 67-year-old guy who was jailed for seven years uh, in China, literally for subversion. That's his charge. So he was charged with subversion, damaging national security, and uh, for harming social stability. Uh, Apparently for leading an underground organization that masqueraded as a church, because it wasn't the state Chinese church, it was an underground church and also for um, bringing attention to uh, some of the, the abuses of government. So the fact that they were removing crosses uh, from churches, the fact that they were putting Christians in prison, and that they were putting lawyers who were trying to defend those Christians in prison um, as well. And uh, one journalist writes this, for Christians who respond to Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Communist Party in China cannot get their heads around that because they're atheists. So in their eyes, you're standing up and saying the state is doing things wrong and in their eyes, the only possible reason you could have for doing that is because of foreign influence, so another country. It's actually not another country, it's another kingdom altogether that we understand. So what does it mean to be subversive in our lives? Um, So what are the, the Caesars, if you like, of our day? What are the Caesars of the Western world? Um, There's a book called Holy Subversion and the author of that suggests six of them. Uh, Self, where we put ourselves at the center of everything. Success and the kind of the Western definition of success that that people strive for. Uh, Money, uh, leisure, sex, power. Six different areas that we can look at. Six different areas that exercise lordship over our lives. Now these are all good things. Okay, these are good things that, um, that are from God. Each one of them in its proper context with a proper biblical worldview um, is a gift from God that is to be affirmed. And that works when we bring these things under Jesus' lordship in our lives. But when we don't, um, then these things, good things, become God-like things in our lives. And uh, when we give them a higher position than the giver of the gift, then they become oppressive rulers that begin to destroy our lives. And so we must live, sub- live subversively like the early Christians did, placing God on his throne where he belongs. And there are some questions in Outlook you can look at afterwards uh, to help process some of that. But when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord in all of our lives and we live it accordingly in how we, how we live our lives every day, Monday to Friday and, and weekends as well, then we begin to turn our world upside down, because our lies become so countercultural to the world's way of doing things that we begin to expose the culture uh, of our day. Um, so for example, um, subverting the Caesar of success, um, you know, not success, we start to see success not as, as something that gives me a claim, but we see success as, as how do we make other people successful in life? Uh, Mother Teresa, for example, she subverted the world's idea of success by spending her life on the poor of this world. And we begin to see the difference. You know, when people find happiness and contentment in people rather than things and stuff, we subvert uh, the world's idea of success. You know, when we balance fruitfulness, which is I suppose one word we have for success in the Christian world, with faithfulness, um, when we start to say, well actually we, we, we use what we've got as best we can in our world, but it's also about who we become in the process that's important. We start to redefine what success is. Um, some Christian guy called Diognetus, I think that's how you pronounce his name, second century Christian. Um, I'm sure you'll have a word with me one day if I got that wrong. Um, he uh, wrote this about early Christians' understanding of success and faithfulness. Christians do not find happiness by ruling over their neighbors, or by seeking supremacy over the weak, or being rich, or by attacking the inferior. On the contrary, Christians see success in taking upon themselves the burdens of their neighbor, using their positions of superiority to benefit the deficient and in distributing whatever they receive from God to the needy. This is what it means to be an imitator of God. Then we look at the uh, power and we see how Jesus kind of subverted the idea of power. So in the kind of Luke story, right at the beginning of Luke, you've got Caesar Augustus calling a census of the whole Roman Empire. So you can imagine Caesar Augustus in his great palatial accommodation thinking, I wanna, you know, I wanna boast about how many people are in our kingdom and I wanna make sure everybody's paying the taxes. So we're gonna have this massive census. Jesus is born into a humble stable. And uh, he comes to serve. In fact, he doesn't even come to show his own glory. He comes, he says, to show his father's glory. It's not about me, it's about him. And, uh, and lives his life. And yet every Christmas, we don't actually celebrate Caesar's, ama- Caesar's amazing census. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, Caesar or Jesus in his stable, which one is more powerful? Okay, His life subverts it, it demonstrates it. Subverting the Caesar of money and mammon and prosperity in our world. You know, when Jesus is tempted by the devil in Luke chapter four, the challenge comes to him. If you're the son of God, then speak to this stone and turn it into bread. He, Satan always reduces life to the material. Uh, satisfy your material needs. And that's the temptation of the comfortable Western society, comfort and ease. Um, In his brilliant little book, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis examines the temptations, or this particular temptation, from Satan's perspective. And uh, in the book he's got is that the character playing the devil is a guy called Uncle Wormwood, and he's schooling a younger, um, his nephew, Screwtape, in ways to neutralize the faith of a new Christian follower. Uh, Listen to these really challenging lines about money and prosperity. Wormwood says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really, it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circles of acquaintances, his sense of importance, and the growing pressure of absorbing agreeable work build in him a sense of being at home at earth. Being at home on earth, which is just what we want. So Jesus' reply to the the devil was, man doesn't live on bread alone. Okay, there is more than just the material in this world, and then there's the sex in our culture. Um, you know, many would argue that's that's like got out of control. You know, here's a gift of God um, that is powerful and beautiful. Um, someone's likened it to a river. You know, a river is powerful and beautiful when it is within the banks that it is meant to be in, but uh, as soon as it bursts its banks, it, it dangerously becomes something that causes a flood disaster area that causes pain in people's lives, it causes devastation, it causes heartache. Um, and in our culture, it is fueled by, you know, billion, multi-billion pound porn industry, sexualized advertising and sexualization right across our culture. Something that is good that has, has now become something that is wrecking is, is lives as well. Subverting the self-life. Again, that starts with making it all about Jesus, not about me. Making it about us together, not just about myself and I, subverting leisure, you know, seeing free time as for involvement with people, not just about entertainment for me. Um, it's about people, it's not just about things. And when people start to see us actually living under the Lordship of Jesus, there will be opposition because it challenges people's lives and their thinking but there will also be people who start to ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. Um, I came across this which I find quite helpful and it's, it likens our, our lives together really as like a, a film trailer. So it, he says this, you know, trailers are tasters. You know, short film versions of the soon to be released feature film and they usually include the best special effects The funniest scenes or the most romantic moments, depending on the film, for the upcoming feature. Now watch those around you in the theater at the end of each trailer, and if it has done its job, usually one person will turn to the other and say, I want to see that movie. This is a great metaphor for the missional church. If we do our job well, people will see what it does and say, I want to see the world that they come from. So it will challenge and it will cause persecution but there will be people who want to know what is it what world is it that you come from what is it that gives you the reason for the hope that you have uh, in that and so jesus is accused of subverting the nation but actually it's not the nation that he's subverting it's the spiritual forces of darkness it, that are at work in our world that are across the nations and that shape our culture shape your culture in your in your uh, in your neighborhoods in your places of work in the whole of society and he was rightly subverting those and challenging those. And he overcame them by all that he did on the cross. Um, he came into this world and he lived in the middle of it all. Okay? He took the persecution. He challenged it and he gave his life to overcome it. And one day he will come back and restore it all. But he calls each one of us to begin to put our lives uh, under his lordship. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's not easy to live the Christian life. Um, we look at folks like who and realize how hard it is in parts of the world but it is our call okay and we do it by first of all aligning our lives to jesus just bringing our lives under under him and that's how we begin to subvert our culture we bring every area of our lives under his grace for forgiveness under his love and under his rule which empowers us, and I find that a huge challenge. I find it a continual challenge. It never seems to get any easier in life. It's impossible in many ways in our own strength, but we have the promise, because God is alive, because Jesus is alive and he's poured out his spirit, that we can receive his power, his empowering in our lives. We can receive his spirit to depend on, because his spirit produces the fruit, and they are subversive fruits, unconditional love no peace in the middle of storm, joy despite what is happening, goodness that overcomes evil, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Each of those fruits is what makes the difference through our lives and God grows those. You know, even that little picture a few weeks back with the the English Defense League in the center of Birmingham and that girl just smiling at his anger and how it subverts and overcomes Uh, the things of this world and the hate and the dark side of it but the question is will we be like Pilate will we waver in our decisions will we compromise with the crowd and go with their shouts their demands their will or will we take the tough decisions in our own lives you know will we make wholehearted choices to follow him to look to honor Jesus for the right reasons as Lord in our lives both inwardly um, and outwardly affirming our loyalty to him. And so the gospel is fantastic because it shows us that Jesus came into the middle of this stuff. He suffered and gave his life to break the power of it and he's now alive, beginning to restore this world. But he chooses to do it through us as we trust him and start to live it. Let's pray. As uh, the end of Psalm 139 encourages us to search our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would search me, O God, that you would know my heart that you would test me and know my anxious thoughts that you would look and see is there any offensive way in me but lead me in the way everlasting so lord we bring our lives before you this morning and uh we pray that you would show us those areas that uh you want us to bring under your grace this morning Where we can receive forgiveness. That you bring under your love, Lord, and that we can bring under your rule and say, Lord, we want you to lead us in this area, Lord, in the way everlasting. Spirit of God, fill us now. Lord, produce your fruit in our hearts and lives. And fill us, Lord, with courage and the will to follow you. And if you're here this morning and um, this, you're just looking in and thinking, I wanna know about this world, then uh, you can just simply ask God to, to forgive you and start to lead your life. And uh, there'll be folks at the back who'll pray for anyone this morning, for anything that you want prayer for. But let's continue to worship him and respond in our hearts and in our lives. Amen.